You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. This podcast was recorded in partnership with Quarterdeck Talks, who run monthly events including Royal Navy and military-themed talks, networking and professional military education opportunities in Portsmouth. In this Quarterdeck Talk, we hear from Nick Stanley on the role of minesweepers during World War II. Good evening, everyone. Um, they say about minesweepers that uh, good things come in small packages. Uh, they can say it as about audiences as well, so we're, we're obviously beautiful. Uh, thank you very much for coming along tonight. I know the temptations of the Christmas office parties and things like that have, uh, have been a significant lure. Uh, I'm sure Kay will organise photocopiers and broom cupboards for the traditional uh, Christmas party fair afterwards, uh, after this event. But thank you very much for turning up, and Kay, thank you very much indeed for inviting me uh, today. Uh, what we're going to talk today about is uh, they led the way, Royal Naval Minesweepers in World War um, it's going to be a fairly broad narrative. I'm not going to go into too much, uh, I'm not going to burrow down into too much detail. I'm going to keep it fairly statistics uh, light. Uh, and in terms of the breadth of the detail, probably too too broad. As I sort of prepared for this more and more, I thought, well, I, I wish I'd really honed down on the topic. Uh, but no, we're going to get the broad brush treatment. Uh, what we can do this evening is, is look at the topic through a series of lenses, though, because it, it really it lends itself to looking at it through lenses. Uh, and these are a number of these that could be the technological lens, looking at the various measures we took, the countermeasures, and then the counter-countermeasures, which was an ongoing theme uh, throughout the war and throughout the, the battle to defeat the mine. Uh, we can look at it from a tactical uh, perspective, uh, how we evolved our tactics to cope with the various changes in the technology um, and how we, uh, how we conducted ourselves in our operations. We can look at it from a classical strategic perspective, uh, looking at concepts such as sea control, uh, sea denial, power projection. Uh, we can look at it in a, a broader grand strategic uh, approach, looking at it from the shift from the defensive to the offensive, which is really the story of the Second World War. And also we can look at it through the lens of uh, recent Royal Naval operational experience, compare and contrast uh, with things that have happened there. So these are some ways we can look at what's uh, what's happening in the uh, in this presentation. Um, that picture was taken on the twenty fourth of twenty uh, fourth July, nineteen forty five. It shows what happens when a fleet minesweeper comes into contact with a mine. Uh, the sweeper was HMS Squirrel. Uh, she was the last but one uh, significant Royal Naval loss of the Second World War. She was off uh, Siam, off uh, Thai waters near Phuket. Uh, doing Operation Livery. Uh, the last significant Royal Naval loss of the Second World War occurred two days later. A sister ship of uh, HMS Squirrel in the 7th Mine Sweeping Flotilla, same patch of water, and she was taken out by a Japanese kamikaze. Uh, the relevance is not so much the loss, tragic though they were. The relevance is what happened on the next day was that that Mine Sweeping Flotilla went out and carried on mine sweeping. And that was the story of the mine sweepers throughout the, throughout the war. You took the loss. You carried on doing your job. So this is uh, this is their story. Uh, the mines certainly came of age in the First World War. Uh, the statistics uh, speak for themselves in terms of how many were laid and uh, and the damage they did. Uh, but certainly, it put the mine not foremost in people's uh, uh, senses, but it certainly parked it there, and people had to be aware of it as a problem. 
Uh, if you look at that, uh, Admiral Jellicoe's uh, Grand Battlefleet orders, uh, it clearly factored in the mines into how he manoeuvred uh, the, the fleet at the Battle of Jutland, for, for example. And uh, what, what, what are the reasons why he was so focused on that was because the event shown in that picture there. Uh, that's the, uh, that was the modern dreadnought vessel HMS Audacious, uh, sunk by a single small contact mine off the north coast of Ireland in August 1914. So in the first month of the war, the Navy loses one of its precious, precious battleships. So that really uh, asserted the, the danger that the mine could pose. And perhaps even, even more significant than that uh, was our experience in the Dardanelles. So the Dardanelles was an attempt to force the Straits to get up to Constantinople, bombard it, force the Turkey out of the, uh, out of the First World War. Uh, the Royal Navy and French navies were on the point of breaking through. They'd reduced the forts pretty much to rubble uh, when they ran into a Turkish minefield laid by a small auxiliary mine, mine layer. Uh, within the space of a few short hours, three battleships were sunk with tremendous loss of life. At that point, the Allied warships withdrew, and it was decided, scratching the heads, we're going to have to get around this another way, which then saw the, saw the Gallipoli campaign take place, the landings at uh, Hellas and places like that, and uh, we all know how well that went. But in terms of operational effect, the mine really, really had a significant impact uh, at that point. As World War II approached, the Royal Navy was in a, in a fairly good place in terms of its uh, mine countermeasures capability. It knew the threat was there. Uh, it had some uh, good modern ships at, uh, at hand. Uh, there was a flotilla of uh, sloops that were handed off to the anti-submarine role, which could have been minesweeper capable. We didn't get those. But what we did have were 21 of these, uh, Halcyon class. Uh, these were sloops as well, but I'll really address them in terms of being minesweepers. They had a significant anti-submarine capability and a significant minesweeping capability. Uh, they were big, 1,300 tons. They were fast. They were well-armed. And they had a lot of deck space, so they could handle the sweeps of that time and the, the sweeps that were introduced during the course of the war that we'll be talking about. So these were, were, were pretty serious pieces of kit. They were, they were good, one, good, uh, good vessels. They operated uh, around the globe, effectively. Uh, of the 21, we lost nine during the war, so they were hard-fought ships. Uh, they were supported, backed up, I hate to use the term B-team, but uh, much less capable vessels, uh, the old Abadair or Hunt class of fleet minesweepers. These have been built in the, uh, in the last years of the Great War, uh, so they dated back to 1918. A lot of them had been put into reserve, so as war approached, the major efforts to get them out of reserve. They're in places like Singapore, Malta, Alexandria, uh, Port Said, and some in the UK waters. Uh, they were very, very good by First World War standards, not so good by Second World War standards. Uh, limited sweeping capabilities because they were so cramped, they couldn't handle the model, modern gear as well. And also logistically constrained, they, they were coal burners, uh, so they had to go where the coal was, uh, which uh, impacted them in terms of range. Uh, tactically, it made them quite visible. They're called Smoky Joes because you always knew when they were over the horizon because there was a cloud of smoke uh, that uh, preceded or followed these, depending on which way the wind was blowing. Uh, but they were they were hard-fought ships again. I mean, five lost during the war. Uh, when Cunningham took the surrender of the Italian fleet in 1944, he did so from one of these because these vessels had fought so hard in the Mediterranean 
up until that point, he wanted to show his uh, acknowledgement of the hard work of the Smoky Joes. So he, uh, he did, did so from there. Uh, so those were our fleet sweepers, about 23 of those. And these were then backed up uh, by a whole host uh, and a growing host of, uh, of platforms. Uh, we started the war, we already had 20 Admiralty trawlers, the Admiralty uh, designed and built trawlers for the minesweeping role. We had about 20 of them. They'd been very effective in the, uh, in the First World War. But they were about to be subsumed within a deluge of trawlers that were being requisitioned or taken up from trade, as we'd say now. Uh, and they were rapidly being brought in, fitted out with minesweeping gear, and then sent out again. Uh, so uh, eventually, um, eventually there were about a thousand, uh, in all during the war, there were about a thousand uh, trawlers uh, taken up from trade. Uh, most of them given over to the minesweeping role, others uh, given over to anti-submarine warfare. Uh, attrition rate of 20% on those, which is, is quite a staggering, uh, staggering figure. I, I, I was quite shocked when I read that. But those were going to be doing excellent work for us in inshore waters on the coastal routes for us. The fleet sweepers were going to the main fleet. They were looking after uh, the home fleet, the Mediterranean fleet, keeping the main naval bases open and more available for expeditionary operations. And the other type, uh, alongside the trawlers, we were taking up drifters from trade. We were taking up whalers from trade. So anything that could take them uh, a sweep. And then uh, finally, in this group, the paddle wheel steamers, they'd been used very effectively for mine sweeping in the First World War. Uh, we were quickly grabbing hold of those from around UK waters. Uh, and within about a couple of months of the outbreak of war, we had five flotillas of those operating mainly off the eastern coast and south coast. Uh, big decks good for sweeping gear, but they were quite limited in the kinds of sweeps they could deploy, mainly a, a, a fairly ancient uh, team sweep, a wire stretched between two of them uh, steaming together. Uh, and also their days were numbered as soon as the Germans uh, came up with the acoustic mine uh, because of the, the noise they made. But up until that point, they were quite useful vessels for us, and, and we used them. Five of those lost at Dunkirk. Again, hard-fought ships. The personnel in these auxiliary mine vessels uh, were trained or processed uh, through a location called Sparrow's Nest, known later in the war as HMS Europa. It was the home of the Royal Naval Patrol Service. Uh, it's a location now of the Royal Naval Patrol so uh, Service Association and also their memorial. It's at Lowestoft. Uh, it was requisitioned on the 23rd of August, uh, 1939. The staff arrived on the 25th. Uh, the first uh, crews for process arrived on the 26th and they were sent to sea on the 27th. So that was the turnaround. That was the turnaround you had at that point. Uh, further north, in November 1939, we opened HMS Uh which many of you will have heard of. That was at Port Edgar uh, on the southern banks of the Firth of Forth. And that was really uh, devoted to minesweeping training. Uh, in the course of the war, 4,000 officers and 15,000 men went through uh, the Lochinvar process of minesweeping training. Uh, but those were guys who were mainly going to the fleet sweepers. Uh, that was the priority for Lochinvar. But those two setups were absolutely fundamental in terms of our minesweeping capability during the Second World War. Uh, Late comers to the party. Uh, two classes of vessel I just want to talk about briefly. The Banger class. We had 20 of these on order in 1939. As soon as war broke, war broke out, uh, that was doubled to 40. I think we finished with around 45 of them. Uh, there were small coastal minesweepers, 
quite modern. Uh, the problem was with their size. I, my father-in-law served on board Bangers. He served on board Flower Class Corvettes. And he said the Banger was by far the worst seaboat. Uh, they were, well, and he said they'd roll in wet grass, but you know, we, we've said that about all our, all our mine hunters and mine sweepers. Uh, so 80 people crammed into a vessel designed for 60. Uh, not much space down aft, so they were quite limited. They couldn't take on the influence sweeps that we developed during the war. They couldn't do that apart from the acoustic sweep, which didn't take up much room forward. But they weren't capable of magnetic sweeping, and Sea State also limited their ability to do mechanical sweeping. They're also fitted with uh, sonar and a small suite of depth charges, so they had a limited ASW capability as well. Interestingly, the bridges, uh, when they came out of the yard, were a lot of them were closed bridges, which were very unpopular. Uh, when they were being bombed in the Mediterranean, the, uh, the bridge crews and the command couldn't see where the bombers were coming from to direct the guns. So that wasn't a popular move. But that was the Banger class. And then the, uh, the, the big class of vessel that was designed and brought out during the Second World War was the Algerine class. Uh, over a hundred of these, uh, Slightly smaller than the Halcyons, 1,100 tons, but purpose-built as minesweepers, although they did give them a sonar, they did give them depth charge um, uh, throwers, Uh, but they were primarily minesweepers, uh, big, capable, fast, space, uh, able to fit in uh, all the the minesweeping kit that that came up during the war. So that was the classes of ship we had. Uh, as war approached, uh, we were speaking about the activity at uh, Sparrow's Nest. I mean, at Sheerness, uh, as early as June, July, we were taking trawlers in and, and, re- and reconfiguring them uh, to be uh, minesweepers. Uh, so we, we knew which way the wind was blowing. Just immediately prior to, the, uh, to war in July, uh, the two Halston flotillas had done a big minesweeping exercise off the south coast. Uh, and they're quite pleased themselves. They bagged 50 out of 50 mines that had been laid. Uh, and as war got nearer, as soon as that finished, and as soon as the fleet review that took place there finished, uh, the first flotilla went straight up to Scapa uh, to be based there. Uh, the fifth flotilla went to Dover, swept clear the routes that the BEF was about to take to go over to France and, uh, and Belgium, and then that deployed to the Nor and Harwich area because that was really seen as that was going to be the, the, the focal point of the defensive battle against the mine. And meanwhile, all of the uh, trawlers and auxiliaries that we were requisitioning, uh, those were standing up all around ports around the UK, but with a bias towards the East Coast. And then on 3rd of September, war was declared... And the Germans started laying mines straight away. And the, the submarines, the German U-boats were already pre-positioned and they were laying mines off the east coast uh, ports and off the south coast ports. Uh, their efforts spread to the, taking the west coast later in the, uh, in the early part of the war, but initially it was the east and south coast. Um, German mine laying destroyers, very fast, very capable. Initially their focus was laying defensive fields off the German coast and the North Sea coast there and Heligoland around there. But once they, uh, once that had been completed to a satisfactory level, they were turned loose on the east coast of the UK. They were laying mines off the Tyne, off the Humber, off Great Yarmouth and all along there, and especially off uh, the Thames estuary. Uh, problem for them, they could get in very, well, problem caused by them, they could get in very quickly. They could lay six or seven hundred mines in a night quite easily. Uh, aided by the fact that at that point, to assist our own coastal convoys, we'd left our navigation lights on. Mm-hmm. So uh, light vessels and lighthouses were still burning and turning at that point. Uh, so they joined the fray in October. 
Uh, and on my Twitter feed, you know, there's, there's been a lot, a lot of losses in the last week, uh, in 1939 due to minefields they laid off the, uh, off the time. And then in November, uh, the German, uh, Navy's fleet air arm, uh, joined the fray, uh, seaplanes started laying mines in the Thames estuary. So we were facing a multidimensional threat from the surface, subsurface and from the air. So that was, uh, that was very, very significant. Uh, the sort of one weakness the Germans had on this was the, the, the weakness that affected the whole of the German Navy was that they'd been building towards a war with Britain in 1942-1943. So Plan Z for Germany was based on a war in 42-43. So war happened two years early for them, two years too early for them. And as a result, their mine stocks, especially the magnetic mines that we'll be talking about shortly, they didn't have enough of those to, uh, to sustain the level of threat that they could have posed. So at one point they had a, their, their foot on our throats, but because they didn't have the mine stocks, they were unable to, uh, to really see the job off in the early part of the war. So and just to recap, the, the focus of the effort here now was really off the, uh, off the East Coast. Um, but the Thames estuary was, was absolutely, absolutely critical. But this was the phony war, so, you know, nothing was happening. Uh, 10th September, the first uh, British uh, merchant vessel lost the SS Magdapur, uh, mine of Sizewell, uh, and that just set the pattern. This was going to go on day after day, uh, week after week, month after month, uh, as I say, a tr an attritional campaign. Uh, the city of Paris was mined about, uh, she's top right, mined about eight days later. Quite significant, she wasn't sunk, and they were able to just look at the damage on her and they saw from the damage that it had not been a contact mine. So this has confirmed Admiralty suspicions that the Germans had introduced the magnetic mine. Now, we'd used the magnetic mine in 1918. Uh, we hadn't used it very effectively or very efficiently, but we, we, we were the first to use it. Um, and we'd just let things lapse in the interwar years. We didn't have, we didn't have countermeasures against the magnetic mine because it worked on the theory that unless you knew the settings of the mine, uh, any attempt to sweep of it was going to be fairly irrelevant. Um, so the magnetic mine was going to be a massive threat for us because when we found it was there, we had no means to counter it. Um, and so there was a real pressure on to get one of these beasts, get it in, exploit it, find the intelligence from it, and then design the sweeps that could counter it. Uh, and until then, we were sort of naked. Um, and just the final photograph, uh, bottom left, a Japanese liner, uh, a very large Japanese liner taken out. She was neutral and just points at the indiscriminate nature of, uh, of mine warfare where mines are laid uh, in that manner. This was off the UK coast. Uh, didn't stop Japan joining the, uh, the Germans in the war there, sadly. And of course, the Royal Navy was taking losses as well and starting bottom left. Um, 13th of November, uh, the mine-laying uh, cruiser HMS um, uh, Adventure was seriously damaged by a mine in the Thames estuary. Uh, the destroyer HMS Blanche went to her aid. Uh, Blanche triggered another mine, and she was sunk. She was the first destroyer lost in the uh, in the Second World War. Uh, and it sort of buck-ended because in December 1944, the uh, HMS Aldenham was the last destroyer lost in the Second World War, and she was lost to a mine off the Yugoslavian coast. So um, a neat bookend there, although I'm sure they, their survivors don't think so. Um, Her Majesty's trawler Mastiff, top left, 
she was lost a few days later. Uh, she was trying to recover a mine on deck so we could exploit it. Uh, the operation didn't go well. Uh, blew up, the ship sunk. And she was the first minesweeper we lost in the, uh, in the war. Uh, sent a picture, HMS Belfast, brand new, brand new, only just been commissioned. Uh, she set off uh, a magnetic mine in the Firth of Forth. That put her out of action for over three years. So uh, the, the scale of the damage to, to Belfast, uh, if they'd have known it would have taken three years, I suspect they wouldn't have bothered even trying on her. Uh, just as well she did, otherwise we wouldn't have a cruiser in the Thames at the moment. Mm-hmm. And then top right, uh, 4th of December, uh, 1939, because the home fleet had been forced to work from the west coast of Scotland following the loss of the Royal Oak at Scapa Flow. Uh, they were using uh, Loch Hugh as, as, their, as their secret hideaway. Uh, fortuitously, the Germans had laid magnetic mines off the entrance to Loch Hugh. Uh, HMS Nelson triggered one. She was then trapped inside the lock uh, for several weeks uh, because we weren't able to sweep her out to get her out for repair. Uh, but she was out of action f- until July 1940. And two more vessels were lost trying to get her out. So, as I say, that's, that's the phony war as far as the Royal Navy was experiencing it. Uh, the real focus of the battle, uh, if you like, uh, I'm the Schwerpunkt, if, uh, if you want to use German on it, was the Thames Estuary. And the Port of London was our most important port in the UK at that stage in the war. Uh, 40,000 tons of coal a week needed to keep it burning and turning. You can imagine the food requirements and it couldn't all come in by road or railway. So the East Coast convoys focusing in on the Thames of Estuary were really absolutely vital. And uh, during the war, 129 uh, Royal Naval warships, this is the, the total war, uh, so this is the weekly snapshot, uh, 129 Royal Naval warships lost in the Thames Estuary. Uh, 172 merchant vessels, they're the blue ones, and uh, most of them to the mine. Okay. So hideous losses. And at one point in November, we only had one of the four deep water routes into, the, uh, into, the, into London open. We could only keep one open. So we were really, really in dire straits at that point. Um, yeah. So, so we needed to find a way to defeat the mine. And the breakthrough came over the period 22nd to 24th of November, uh, when off Shubri Ness, uh, the mine watchers one night observed German seaplanes uh, laying objects that were, were making small splashes. And when dawn broke, they could see some objects lying on the sands off Shubri Ness. Uh, they guessed correctly that these were mines. Uh, they called the experts at HMS Vernon to come and uh, try and get hold of them and uh, and make them safe for exploitation. Uh, Lieutenant Commander John Ouvry, I got the name wrong last time I used it, uh, John Ouvry uh, led a small team and on the wet sands of Shubri Ness, uh, they defused and rendered safe two German magnetic mines. Uh, which were then taken straight away to uh, to Vernon to, for the scientists to be let loose on them. Uh, as a result of his heroic action, and, and it was heroic, uh, it would have been a, a Victoria Cross had it been in, in the actual face of the enemy, I think. Uh, Ouvry was awarded the uh, Distinguished Service Order in the first naval awards of the, uh, of the Second World War, and the King came personally down to Vernon uh, to bestow that award and to look at the work that was taking place there. Such was its strategic... Um, uh, importance. Uh, for those of you with an artistic bent, uh, the picture is uh, called Seaman on the Shore. 
Uh, it's by Eric Revilius. Uh, and I've also heard it referred to as The Long Walk. And it pretty much uh, depicts uh, what Uvri did. So the breakthrough came. We'd got hold of one of these and we could get inside it. And from that exploitation, we developed a whole range of uh, uh, magnetic uh, minesweeps. Um, the first to come through, and we'd already been thinking about the, the what we called mind destruction ships, uh, it was HMS Board. Um, it had been obviously requisitioned, not really a, a conventional naval warship. And she was fitted with a massive uh, electromagnet inside her, which was pulsed to create a massive magnetic signature. So it was like a, a magnetic signature dialed up to 11, effectively, which wasn't very good for any ships that were nearby because it trashed their magnetic compasses uh, and all sorts. But the basic idea was you would run her up and down a navigation path and hope that the, the size of the signature would just blow the mines. And eventually she proved quite successful and she bagged 20 in one day at one point. And Churchill referred to her as the most valuable ship in the Royal Navy because such was the threat of the ma uh, magnetic mine at that point. Uh, we ordered about nine more, and they, they started to conduct their operations. It was a fairly crude way of doing it. Uh, the life expectancy of the ships themselves was not great because they were being shaken to bits by this. But hey, you know, they were triggering mines. That's, that's all that really mattered at that point. Uh, but then in 1940, uh, during um, Operation Dynamo, Operation Aerial, the recovery of the British Expeditionary Force from France, uh, one of these fell into enemy hands off uh, well, it, it was it was partially sunk. It was recovered by the Germans. Uh, they could uh, see what we were doing with them, and they were able to develop countermeasures in their magnetic mines, such that these vessels no longer were effective. So these were then withdrawn from service. But you know they, they'd kept they'd kept the finger in the uh, in the dike effectively for for uh, a short while for us, which was absolutely critical. Uh, one of the mines was taken up to Boscombe Down. Uh, where they flew over uh, aircraft with various uh, um, devised uh, magnetic minesweeps, eventually arriving on what was called the DW-1, uh, a magnetic sort of coil fitted around a Wellington bomber. Uh, and this worked. Uh, this, would, this would trigger, this would set off the, uh, the GA mine. The problem was the swept path of this was very, very narrow. Uh, we, we're just talking handfuls of yards. And the second problem was navigational accuracy. Uh, there was no way you could assure yourself that the aircraft had flown exactly over the piece of water that you were going to put your convoys down. So they weren't really going to be that good in the context of um, of the, the battle we were facing, fighting in, in the uh, uh, off the East Coast and the Thames Estuary. Where they were very, very effective was in the Suez Canal. And they operated in the Suez Canal all through the war because that was just tailor-made for them, basically. Uh, and... There, were, there was mining, magnetic mining in the, in, in the, uh, in the Suez Canal. Then the final picture, bottom right, is, is, was the real breakthrough. It was called the double L um, uh, sweep. It was the magnetic sweep that was fitted uh, far and wide. Uh, two buoyant legs of differing lengths, uh, pushing an electric uh, pulse through them, creating a magnetic field, setting off mines. It was proved successful um, in something like on the 20th of February, 2000, uh, uh, 20th February uh, 1940. So effectively, within three months of us having recovered a mine, we developed an effective countermeasure to it on the magnetic mines. And as soon as this was proven in, in the Thames estuary, uh, it was fitted to everything that could take it, basically. And it became the, the default setting for uh, the default um, uh, magnetic sweep during the Second World War. So that was what uh, Uvra's uh, achievements gave us. 
Uh, the battle continued then, and it was an attritional, attritional battle. And what we saw was a sawtooth of losses would climb when the Germans introduced a new measure, drop when we found the countermeasure to that, climb again. Uh, taken on an average, we were losing 60 to, 60 to 70,000 tonnes of shipping uh, um, a month in the, in the North Sea area. And at times, we were losing more ships in the North Sea than we were losing on the Atlantic routes at that stage <laughs> of the war. We're talking about 1940. Uh, the fleet sweepers were taking hits. Uh, we lost the Sphinx to uh, enemy bombing off, uh, off Aberdeen. Uh, we lost um, uh, Danoon off Great Yarmouth to a mine. Uh, the trawlers themselves were being attacked relentlessly by the Luftwaffe at this stage, and they were sitting ducks, which accounts for why we lost so many of them. They weren't very well armed. Um, and the various measures that were being brought in that I mentioned uh, well, first of all, the Germans started to reverse the polarity on their magnetic mines. So we'd have to do the same on our sweeps, which meant you'd have to do two runs uh, to make sure uh, the mines had been countered. Then, of course, Germans introduced arming delays, ship counts, so many, many more runs. Uh, um, late summer 1940, they introduced the acoustic mine, uh, set off not by a magnetic signature, but the acoustic signature of a ship. Fortunately, Vernon had already been working on this, sort of measured ship's acoustic signatures, uh, so it was prepared to a certain extent. Uh, and fairly quickly, we had in develop development some fairly crude acoustic sweeps. And initially, just a pneumatic drill uh, switched to on in the, in the flooded forepeak of a, of, a, of a ship or put in a, uh, a tin box and put over the bows or put, uh, put to the stream abreast the vessel and variations of that. And those became the, the standard acoustic sweeps throughout the war. So we'd, we'd got the acoustic sweep uh, uh, finessed fairly quickly as well, which, which was a good thing. Uh, but all this sort of stuff was going on. And then, of course, Germans started to introduce combined influence, so magnetic and acoustic. So this was, the, this was responsible for the sawtooth and the peaks and uh, ebbs in, uh, in losses throughout that. Uh, in May 1940, we sent uh, trawlers and drifters uh, to uh, the Dutch and Belgian coasts to counter mining there when the Germany inv invaded the lowlands. And then they were involved in recovering the BEF from the beaches of Dunkirk. Let's say lost five, uh, five of the paddle wheel steamers there. We lost uh, some of the hunt class there. Interestingly, none of our minesweepers from the Sheerness force responsible for Thames Estuary were sent to Dunkirk. It was too important. So none of those were sent. And that battle of attrition then went on for the remainder of the war. And I'm just going to move on from that now. The Mediterranean became an active theatre in, um, in July 1940, after the Battle of France had ended. And fairly soon after that, uh, mines were detected off the uh, Mediterranean fleet's base at Alexandria, uh, off Torbrook and off Derna. And the problem for us there would be we'd been filtering a lot of Mediterranean minesweeping assets back into UK home waters, given the intensity of the battle there. So the Mediterranean was always going to be really, really strapped for minesweeping assets because it was still fundamentally a secondary theatre compared to uh, maintaining the home base. Um, but from small beginnings, the mine threat got greater and greater. And I'll just point out a couple of examples. First of all, off, uh, off Malta, the siege of Malta, uh, basically the Germans tried to blockade it. And the picture top right just shows the uh, a series of German minefields that were laid off, off the letter. 
So really, really in intensive mining uh, in those waters. Uh, everyone knows, most people know about Operation Pedestal, the mul famous Malta convoy that got through the, the tanker Ohio. Uh, the, the convoy before that had been a disaster, Operation Harpoon. And the real tragedy on that was that, uh, of the four ships that eventually got through, uh, I think two or three of them and a couple of destroyers uh, were sunk by mines just off the harbour in, in, uh, in, in sides of the letter. Um, so there was an ongoing battle to keep Malta open. Uh, and bottom right, uh, an incident, again, which is not that well known, uh, Force K, Force Kilo, uh, a cruiser force. Uh, HMS Neptune was uh, lead ship in that formation, approaching the North African coast, uh, came across an Italian minefield, which no one had known about. Um, two cruisers, uh, well, um, uh, HMS Neptune set off four, mile, four mines and was lost, and only one of her sailors survived. So 700 dead. Uh, Kandahar went to her rescue, uh, was sunk, uh, heavy loss of life. And I think HMS Penelope, another cruiser, was badly damaged trying to, trying to save them. So uh, the impact of the mine was quite significant uh, in the Mediterranean as well. And overall mining in the Mediterranean was, was just as intensive as it was in Northeast European waters. Um, Asia opened as a theatre, obviously, in December 1941. Uh, it wasn't a major focus for our mine countermeasures uh, effort. Uh, we tried to deal locally with the issues there, but mining wasn't a massive weapon in the German armory, uh, the Japanese armory at that point. And we didn't really get active in, uh, in Japan until, um, uh, sorry, in the Asian waters until after D-Day, when we were sending uh, flotillas of fleet minesweepers in that direction. The main operation they were designed to, to fulfill, Operation Dracula, the amphibious assault on, uh, on Rangoon, was cancelled just before they, just before they started the operation. Uh, but as we've seen from the introduction, it didn't mean we did, didn't take losses out there. Uh, more of a drag on resources, uh, far more than, uh, um, far more than the Asian waters was, was the Arctic. And after the invasion of Russia, uh, when Stalin had sort of, uh, rightfully asked for support from the, from the Western Allies, it was decided to deploy a flotilla of, uh, Halcyon class, uh, sloops, minesweepers, uh, to Russian waters. And for over two years, we maintained a flotilla of Halcyon-class minesweepers in those waters, Murmansk or Archangel, depending on the time of year, uh, what was iced up, what wasn't. And their duties were local escorts of convoys. So with the convoys for the first two or three days of their outward-bound journey, or last two or three days of their inward-bound journey uh, to the Russian ports, and in between that, they'd be minesweeping because German uh, Germany was mine-laying extensively in the White Sea and the Barents Sea. Uh, similarly, at uh, Iceland, at uh, Havalfjord, we had Algerines there doing a similar job, and also we had them based at, uh, at Lochu, Loch where the convoys formed up from. Uh, a very busy th theatre. Uh, the first Halcyons that were sent there uh, had no preparation in terms of making them ready for Arctic conditions. So you can imagine it was, it was utterly brutal out there. Uh, for them, uh, as they ruled them through the late, the later Halcyons to arrive. And as others came home with the convoys, uh, they had been better prepared for it. But it was never anything less than bleak and miserable. Uh, and uh, they paid a high price as well. Uh, we lost one of them uh, in the White Sea to uh, German bombers. We lost one in the Barents to a submarine. 
HMS Bramble was sunk by destroyers escorting the Admiral Hipper, and tragically, HMS Niger, uh, in very poor visibility off Iceland, uh, put herself and the four vessels she was escorting into a British minefield, and they were all sunk. Um, so um, quite a price. And they stayed out there until the end of 1943, and they were only brought back to the UK uh, in, t- in, in order to get ready for the D-Day invasion, to get themselves ready for that. So that was, uh, that was that. What I'm going to do now, and that was the defensive phase of the war, what I'm going to do now is look at how we evolved our uh, offensive tactics, particularly the, uh, uh, the amphibious um, or the assault sweeping techniques in support of amphibious operations. Just bear with me a moment. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the first amphibious um, assault in which my supers were involved was Operation Ironclad. Um, this was in May 1942. Uh, it's not particularly well known. It was the operation to recapture Madagascar from the uh, Vichy French uh, forces. So it was that short time when Britain was at war with France. And a flotilla of uh, uh, Bangor class, including my father-in-law, uh, swept in the assault force into Carrier Bay, which is, is depicted there. Night operations, so from the very beginning, we were practicing assault mine sweeping operations at night uh, to reduce vulnerability to the sweepers and to the uh, the assault force. Uh, and only one casualty uh, to mines, and that was a corvette pictured uh, bottom left. And that was Operation Ironclad. Ironclad. Thereafter, those sweepers made their way up uh, into the uh, via the um, Suez Canal and then operated along the North African coast. Operation Jubilee uh, also involved minesweepers, two flotillas of bangers. Uh, that was the Dieppe raid. Uh, they didn't encounter any mines. Again, it was a night operation, uh, and they were using buoy channels for that. So they were starting to buoy their channels to mark them uh, to improve navigational accuracy. And also, they were fitted with what are called special nav. What's in the books of special nav aids? I've yet to find out what the special nav aids were, uh, but um, uh, obviously they were they're developing their te- techniques and ta- tactics for those sort of operations. Uh, moving on then into the Mediterranean theatre, where we, we saw uh, the real hard yards in terms of uh, amphibious assault, uh, minesweeping uh, tactical development. Uh, it started in November 1942, which is, the, uh, which is when the Algerines entered the fray. So Algerines, uh, Halcyons and Bangers were involved in this. Uh, the Algerines actually uh, conducted uh, a rehearsal exercise in the Irish Sea, before escorting the com- helping to escort the convoys down to Operation Torch, so uh, we know that the uh, as we, and we have problems with the Royal Marines now, they'll never do anything unless they have an amphibious rehearsal, mm-hmm. and this was happening as far back as 1942. Uh, but quite right too, and if you get it wrong, you get it badly wrong. Um, so British Royal Naval minesweepers were involved in the centre and the Eastern Task Forces. Uh, no mines encountered. One of the problems they faced was getting close to the beach. They couldn't get that close to the beach either because of the beach profiles. Uh, a good dummy run, but actually um, not needed. But that's 2020 hindsight for you. <coughs> Excuse me. Only a few weeks later, though, in Operation Perpetual, um, to the east of the invasion areas off Bougie and Bone, uh, HMS Aldrin herself, the name ship of the class, uh, was sunk by an Italian submarine. 
And then a few weeks after that, uh, HMS Alarm was sunk by German bombers or destroyed by German bombers, more accurately. Uh, but that was the first of the amphibious operations in the, uh, in the Mediterranean. Moving on then to Operation Husky, top right, uh, the invasion of Sicily. Um, this was conducted in very, very poor sea conditions, uh, really, really marginal. So the, the minesweepers did very well uh, to do that. They were split into a Western and Eastern task forces. Uh, most of the mines were discovered in the American zone. Uh, American mine, mine countermeasures vessels were involved at this point as well. Uh, what's interesting is the uh, the phasing of the assault operation. We now stepped into a phasing that we would use again and again and again. And this was the, um, first of all, the minesweepers involved in escorting the assault convoy, then sweeping the deep approach routes, and then other vessels working the inshore area uh, for the assault phase, then spreading out clearing boxes for the naval fire support units and the transport area, effectively, and then clearing that area on a daily basis. So maintenance sweeping is referred to sometimes. So four phases of sweeping, effectively. And that became the norm. And also the, the, the battle tempo or the battle rhythm for the minesweepers that was used off, off Sicily became the norm as well. Sweeping by day, patrolling the flanks of the invasion area at night. Um, which they could sustain uh, over a few weeks. We'll come back to this when we talk about the Battle of Nor uh, the uh, Overlord, though. Uh, and also now we're seeing uh, other forms of minesweeping mine unit enter the fray as well. Um, so let's just look at those. <coughs> the two, the two uh, classes I want to talk about are the MMS, which were known as Mickey Mouse, uh, slightly derogatory, obviously, very derogatory. Mickey Mouse minesweepers. Um, these were designed around a trawler hull, uh, wooden. Uh, we knocked out about 400 of them uh, in the war. Uh, and they were designed pretty much solely for influence sweeping. They didn't have the propulsion or power to pull a heavy mechanical sweep. But what they could do is they could tow the double L. And as you can see, mounted on the bow is the acoustic hammer, which they could deploy over the bow and conduct the acoustic sweeping. So these were going to do excellent work for us in the inshore areas of assault areas. At the same time, they were working all along the UK coast and UK waters now, allowing us to put trawlers back into their commercial role to feed the nation. So the Mickey Mouse minesweepers, and then the British Yard minesweepers, BYMS, known as Yards, uh, 140 of these built for us, designed and built in America, transferred over to us. Again, wooden, uh, small coastal mine, minesweepers. Uh, they could take uh, mechanical sweeps, they could take influence sweeps, and they really filled a, a big gap and took a lot of the burden off the fleet sweepers as well. Uh, so these were being introduced, and these would become part of the standard orbat now for uh, uh, for the assault sweeping. These would always be in the orbat alongside the fleet sweepers. Returning to uh, uh, returning to the Med, uh, the next operation was uh, the Salerno here. Um, better conditions than we faced at um, um, Sicily. Uh, lots of mines, uh, we, uh, we, we neutralized 120 odd mines in one day in the British sector. Uh, again, a mix of assets, the fleet sweepers, uh, small MMS, the BYMS, uh, the British and American sweepers as well. Uh, some flotillas operating and interchanging. And uh, the innovation we saw here was the use of, uh, uh motor launch minesweepers. 
Now, they'd been developed in Malta because Malta had been so strapped for minesweeping assets that it sort of came up with its own invention and designed some light oropes and sweeps to go on the back of motor launches. Well, these were great for assault sweeping for getting really up to the beach. So these were used at, uh, at Salerno landings and used very successfully. And thereafter, they were added to the list of the sort of usual suspects, and they'd normally be at the head of the, uh, head of the line, sweeping in ahead of the, uh, the, the uh, deeper draft vessels. And again, at Anzio, same thing happened. A lot of the time we were finding on these assaults, though, was that water space management was a real problem. Uh, navigational discipline, staying in your swept lane, staying in the swept boxes, not getting in the way of the minesweepers, minesweepers not getting in the way of uh, other shipping. This was a really, really complex problem. Uh, and it was made, uh, made more difficult by, uh, by the sizes of the beachhead areas, quite narrow, which wasn't, a, sorry, which wasn't a problem at D-Day. Um, So D-Day saw the application of all the lessons we'd been learning in the Mediterranean. Uh, and like the army, we didn't bring back formations. We didn't bring back flotillas uh, to lead, lead the assault. Uh, the, the breadth of experience was so extensive uh, across the minesweeping forces at that point, we didn't really need to do this. And we'd got several flotillas in the UK that had been training from January 1944 to get ready for this operation had been doing major exercises uh, so there was no need at this point to bring anything back from the Mediterranean other than the normal rule mount of people who were spreading spreading the wisdom um, it's not my intention to go into detail on uh, on Neptune and Overlord it, it's, it's pretty well covered I want to I want to focus on three aspects of it really uh, the scale the duration uh, and the introduction of a new type of mine uh, the three areas I want to cover uh, first of all, the scale, uh, 306 uh, minesweepers involved on D-Day. Uh, 274 of them were flying the White Ensign. So it was pretty much, I'm Canadian flotilla there and American flotilla. It was a, it was a Royal Navy show. Uh, 10, uh, 10 fleet uh, flotillas, eight of them were, were Royal Navy. Uh, and in terms of scale, again, they had a lot of water to sweep. From the forming up point, uh, Point Zulu on there, I think it's more commonly known as Piccadilly Circus, uh, given the amount of shipping that was there. Uh, so from that point down the spout to the assault area, and then through the assault area up onto the beaches. So that's a lot of water that had to be covered for a lot of ships. 125,000 people went ashore on, on D-Day over the beaches. So that was the scale. Um, a minefield mid-channel, which they sort of knew was going to be there, didn't cause any significant problems. And in truth, not many of the mines were swept or were in, in the areas we were going through. Uh, the Americans hit more snags uh, to the western part of their beachheads uh, because they came across the German magnetic field. But that was after D-Day. On D-Day itself, not a single uh, assault ship was lost. Uh, an American mine sweeper was lost, possibly due to shorefire, possibly due to a mine. An American destroyer was lost. Okay. But the success of D-Day rested very heavily on the fact that the, the mines, uh, if they were there, were, were neutralized and, uh, and we swept, uh, swept the force through. So they got in. That was the scale of it. Again, the size of the area meant that the navigation uh, was, was, was a bit simpler. But then against that, of course, you have the sheer volume of amphibious shipping going in. So it was still a very, very tricky, um, tricky area. And again, it followed those phases. 
it followed those phases of the of the operation. Uh, the next thing, though, is duration. Operation Neptune was the maritime aspects of uh, of, uh, of uh, D-Day and the Battle of Normandy. Um, it didn't all finish on D-Day, and thereafter we were fixed in the Bay de Seine for several months. Uh, and the German aerial mine laying, which I'll come to, was incessant uh, during that period. Uh, the minesweepers were so out countering a mine threat day after day after day. And at night, they were manning the patrol lines called Trout Line um, off the flanks of the invasion force. And there they were coming under attack from German aircraft, uh, from the, the Schnellboot, the, the fast patrol boats. They're coming under attack from what we call today asymmetric uh, midget submarines, human torpedoes, explosive boats. Uh, so there was no rest. And it was really wearing the crews down quite significantly over a period of, of, of weeks and months indeed. So that duration being fixed in one location, uh, when of course, uh, the whole strategy, uh, the Allied strategy hinged about the success of the Battle of Normandy was quite significant. And then the, the, the German mining I've referred to, uh, the key aspect of that was the Germans brought in a new kind of mine, one we hadn't known about, one we weren't particularly ready for, uh, it was the pressure mine. Uh, they had 2,000 of these. They knew how quickly uh, we'd countered the magnetic and the acoustic mines, uh, so they kept them back in reserve, specifically for the invasion. Uh, once uh, the invasion was confirmed, they had 2,000 of them at airfields around the Le Mans area. Then on a nightly basis, they were putting these things in the water. In the first six weeks of Overlord, uh, I think they put four to 500 uh, pressure mines in there, and we had no counter. And when we recovered one and exploited it, we still didn't have a counter to it. Uh, the only thing they could do was to go more slowly. So what you saw was, the, and, and those weren't the only mines uh, at the party. So what you saw was a real, um, a real problem in the assault area, in the uh, in the shipping area, that vessels could only move very slowly. It really slowed down the tempo of the buildup, but not to the extent that it uh, that it. Um, it hindered the Allies excessively, but it was a real drag on how quickly we could build up our forces in there um, until we could uh, break free. Uh, so that concludes uh, all I need to say about uh, D-Day at this point. Uh, when we did break free after the, uh, after the uh, Falaise pocket, uh, Battle of Normandy was open. The focus of minesweepers then really became one of opening up the ports that were being captured. Uh, places like Cherbourg, uh, Brest, uh, Le Havre, uh, and the problem, the challenge we faced there was that um, the Germans had done an effective job of trashing these places, and they'd blown up lots of the works, they'd booby-trapped the docks, the locks, uh, and everything, and they'd put mines in, in there wherever they could. Uh, so it was a massive task to counter these. Uh, some of the, in the inshore work was all being done by our auxiliaries, but in the ports and docks themselves, we were increasingly reliant on pea parties, port parties, uh, divers trained to go in, uh, locate ordnance by hand, because uh, you could never see anything, and, uh, and then try and render it safe uh, or recover it. Uh, I think the diver top right there, he's also trying to generate an, an acoustic and pressure signature that might set off an influence mine, judging by that mode of entry into the water. Uh, these divers were in Wistraham, uh within 24 hours of, uh, of us landing on the beaches. Uh, so they became an integral part of the, uh, of the mine clearance effort. And they're sort of, they're, they're one of the forerunners of, of today's uh, clearance diving branch. So the minesweepers were just moving up the coast as we got, port, uh, got um, 
capturing ports. Uh, in Antwerp, they were actually working in the docks and in the basins and, and in the, on the wharfs as V2 uh, rockets were landing. Uh, so that was the sort of stuff they were doing. And talking about Antwerp now brings me on to uh, uh, to a really fascinating uh, part of the uh, of the campaign, uh, which uh, I confess I'm not going to be able to do it in any detail, do it in any justice. This is the operation to open the Scheldt. I'm the uh, the second British Army seized. Um, seized Antwerp very quickly. They, they bounced the Germans out of it. Uh, what they didn't do uh, was clear the banks of the Scheldt, and, uh, which was the long approach into the port of Antwerp, which was badly needed uh, for the logistic support of all the northern groups of armies in Eisenhower's Orbat. So it was of real, real strategic importance. Uh, so uh, it was a sort of a very, very joint operation. Uh, the army trying to uh, secure the uh, secure the land uh, the, the bordered the Scheldt estuary and us putting uh, a lot of uh, auxiliary minesweepers in to try and clear the Scheldt itself, which was very heavily mined. Uh, in terms of scale on that, uh, I think 15 flotillas of uh, BYMS and MMS involved, about 150 ships, often operating under the under the noses of uh, under the noses of German guns, which were trying to shell them. So a really strategically important operation, uh, without doubt. And for me, it brings interesting parallels as well, uh, although scale is very, very different with what the Royal Navy did to get uh, to get relief shipping into Umkaza in the last Gulf War. But the tactical problem was very, very similar. Um, and that's where I'm going to leave the narrative. Uh, I will now turn to stats. Uh, this just shows the, the, the force levels. Um, so we'll see what we started with and what we finished with. So very, very, uh, we, we threw we threw a lot at it, I think is the uh, summary of that. Uh, what uh, Field Marshal and Lord Wavell would call the, the butcher's bill. Uh, and these are just on the sweepers, of course, I and mean, merchant vessels with the important units in reality. 45 for the fleet sweepers, 300 auxiliary sweepers, of which 200 were, uh, were the trawlers. And swept mines... Uh, even Stevens between Northwest Europe and the Mediterranean. But of course, what we all know is that there was still, after the war, there were still tens and tens of thousands of mines still in the water. So after the war, the minesweepers were still working and still working hard and still losing units. A few words from Mr. Churchill. I think the last sentence is interesting. The nation is once again proud of you. So obviously a, a minesweeper rating annoyed him at some point. <laughs> And also, also he's really focused here on the on the defensive battle, the maintenance of the home base, which was the strategic uh, the strategic win. Not quite the last word because I am going to put a plug in for the Vernon Monument, uh, which is a memorial that's going to be opened on the twenty fifth of March, in what used to be HMS Vernon is now Gunwharf Keys, and that's to commemorate uh, all those who've served uh, in the war against the mine in the Royal Navy past, present, and it will happen again in the future. Uh, and that's the website, and feel free to contribute because we're still collecting money for that. And at that point, thank you for your attention. You. I'm happy to take questions. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going, keep creating the content that we know you love. Thank you.